Bonjour, Guten Tag, Kreuzo. Those are only three languages I know, and one of those is Welsh. Well, I don't know those languages, I know hello in those languages. Um, yeah, it's great to be here, what a privilege. What a privilege, and to be among friends. I really feel like I'm among friends. Oh, it's great. Anyway, enough waffle. Let's get to the Bible. I've, um, I've come with a message called Mobilizing the Priesthood for Mission. And I want to read from 1 Peter 2.9 to remind you all who you are. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. A function of leadership is to keep people moving. It's common sense, really, but leadership implies movement. If people are being led at all, let alone led well, they're not going to stay where they are. They're going to move. And the role of leaders is not to keep people in their place, in their assigned place, in their cubicles, at their workstations, in their little boxes that we've designed for them. It's not to keep people in check. It's to move them from one state, one experience, one stage, one season in their lives into another. It's to progress them. And generally, there are five kinds of people in our churches, generally. And there is some overlap. There are seekers, there are believers, there are followers, there are leaders, and there are multipliers. And the role of pastors supported by deacons and other ministry volunteers and the Ephesians 4.11 five-fold ministry is to help seekers become believers and believers to become followers and followers to become leaders and leaders to become multipliers. We're in the transformation business, as we heard yesterday. And the first transformation is seeing people reconcile to God through reconciliation, seekers become believers. And the next is about seeing the God life in people restored through restoration, believers become followers. Now, I know followers are also believers, but you can just stay at quite a simplistic stage of believing. We need to push through into becoming followers, looking and sounding more and more like Jesus as we actively live out what he's commanded us to do. The next transformational step requires resourcing. Followers become leaders through resourcing, through training and equipping, times like this. And the last is about releasing. Leaders become multipliers when they're released to start new things. And the role of leaders is to understand where people are at. And then to move them forward from that point. And at any one time in church life, we would hope to have multiple people at multiple stages of development moving forward, not only as individuals, but also corporately as one body, as a community, as a church. Jesus is building his church through the people he brings to it, the people he draws to the church, young and old, adults, children, youth. He's building the church through all of it. 
And the role of church leaders is to cultivate, cultivate the life that Jesus brings. We're like gardeners. Cultivate the life that Jesus brings through these people, through the diversity of character, talent, and gifting that comes through the doors. Our leadership should never be a ceiling for others in the church, a church that Jesus is building under an open heaven. So who are we to put ceilings in place with our style of leadership? Leadership is not about holding on to power or consolidating power, but releasing it to empower others. It's about unlocking potential in people, seeing people flourish, seeing them walk into the fullness of all that God has planned and purposed for them, seeing them go deeper in their relationship with Jesus, becoming more and more like him. Have you noticed how much movement there was in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels? Following him, trying to keep up, required a significant amount of intentionality and effort. There was lots of walking, there were lots of boat rides. And discipleship is a journey. It involves movement, progress, change. We're discipled in worship and service to God. We're discipled to serve more effectively as priests in the priesthood of all believers. We are commissioned to be priests for God to all nations from our Jerusalem area, where we live and where we go to church, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Discipleship is movement. A mobilized priesthood is movement. Mission is movement. From our first encounter with Jesus, we follow him through the waters of baptism into a promised kingdom. Just as Old Testament Israel followed Joshua through the Jordan into the promised land. But how many of the people we lead are actually moving to take hold of this promised kingdom? Some of the people we lead attempted to yearn for the things that Egypt offered and have got one foot in the world. Some of the people we lead are still camped on the wrong side of the Jordan and have yet to enter in. Some have followed our Joshua, Jesus, across the metaphorical River Jordan through the waters of baptism, but they've settled too soon, too quickly on the other side, like the Israelites of Joshua 18, verse 3, to whom Joshua said, how long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? They were in, but they weren't yet in to the fullest extent. Believers, but not active followers, let alone leaders or multipliers. The role of leaders is to envision and motivate and equip people to keep moving, lovingly, of course, gracefully, patiently, but intentionally, persistently, and with a sense of urgency, so that every member will leave his or her comfort zone as a Sunday churchgoer to become a more fully realized citizen of the kingdom of heaven on earth walking more fully into the promises of this supernatural kingdom every single day. I love French history. I love France. I love French people. I love French history. I love all of Europe. I am, as a Brit, I do apologize for our behavior recently. 
But I love French history, and I've, in particular, I've enjoyed researching the history of aviation in France. And one of the pioneers of powered flight in the early 1900s was a Paris-born Anglo-Frenchman called Henri Farman. And in 1908, he flew the first controlled circuit in an aeroplane right here in Paris at Issy-le-Molyneux. Everyone had been flying in straight lines before that. Later the same year, he flew the world's first cross-country flight, the first flight away from the safety of, of, a, of a takeoff and landing ground. He flew across country in the Champagne region of France. And I came across this quote in a book called The Aviator's Companion, written in the very early days of aviation, 1910, by Henri and his brother Dick. And this is chapter two, A Few Principles of Mechanics. It says, every one of the sciences, electricity, chemistry, the science of heat, physics, has for its starting point and guiding principle the science of mechanics. The study of the laws which govern moving bodies, whether subject to the action of outward forces or not. Go with me on this. In nature, everything is in motion, from the atoms and molecules which are existent but invisible, to the planets in one of which we live, and to the planetary systems which revolve around their several suns, which are themselves perhaps revolve, revolving in infinite space around other and vaster planetary systems which are invisible and practically unknown to us. Absence of all motion is represented by absolute zero, in which all the molecules are stationary and in a state of perpetual rest, to which we give the name death. Nothing, neither heat, nor electricity, nor light, nor feeling, nor, nor life itself can exist without motion. These guys knew a lot in 1910. In science, and I do believe God is a God of science as he's a God of everything else, in science, absence of motion and a perpetual state of rest is called death. Now, I'm not saying static people in our churches are as good as dead. I'm not saying that. Why are you laughing? You think in saying I'm not saying it, I'm really saying it, but I'm really not saying it. Good luck with that one, translators. I'll give you five minutes. And I'm not saying static churches are dead churches but they can look lifeless. Sometimes sleepers look dead, don't they? I think that's why God invented snoring. <laughs> it's so my wife can be reassured that I'm very much alive. Anyone who shares a room with me on ministry trips should be thankful for my enthusiastic snoring, as Fred can attest. But what the world needs now is not a sleeping church, not apparently lifeless church, but a church that is radiant and pulsating with the presence and power and love and life of God. To show the world that we really are alive in Christ, there has to be visible movement. We have to wake up, stretch, clean up what needs to be clean up, cleaned up, get out of the house serve, participate. 
the role of leaders, be they pastors or teachers or deacons or apostles, prophets, evangelists, is to keep the church moving after the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, in step with the Spirit, along the way that the Word of God illuminates for our feet to the furthest extent, the furthest extent, towards the furthest extent of the inheritance that we have been promised in Jesus. Now in this session, I wanna present a theology of participation for leaders and followers of all ages. So this is for everyone. And I wanna do this by looking at what I think is one of the major reasons for intentional discipleship. If we follow the Jesus model of ministry, one of the major reasons for intentional discipleship is not to make people happier, nicer, kinder versions of themselves. It is about mobilizing a priesthood of all believers to participate in the mission of Christ, our heavenly high priest, to see worship of the one true God established across the entire planet. Now, what are some of the things we leaders wrestle with in our local churches? In some form or other, there'll be discipleship challenges, people not responding as, as we hoped. Why are they not signing up to our courses? Why are we not seeing the fruit we would like to see? Why aren't there as many contributions in our meetings as we would like? Why are so few people coming forward to volunteer in our service teams? Why are our life groups not growing and multiplying? Why is attendance at midweek prayer so lackluster? Why are so few people joining us on outreaches and equips and ministry trips? Why do we leaders feel that we have to do most of the work, all of the work ourselves? I've wrestled with these sorts of questions and in going to God for answers to his word and in prayer, I've realized that what I need and what our church needs to hear is a theology of participation, which sounds rather grand, but simply means knowledge and understanding of why and how God wants and expects everyone to participate in the advance of his heavenly kingdom on earth. Particip participation shouldn't be assumed by us leaders. We have to create a culture in which it's encouraged and in which it can happen. We don't want spectators in our churches. We want players. We want to get people out of the bleachers, get them out of the grandstands, onto the field of play. And I'm not talking about a pitch invasion afterwards. I'm talking about for the main game. As John Wimber used to say, everyone gets to play. But do all the players know that they've been called up? Do, the, do they know that they've been picked? Do our youth know? that they've been picked to play in this game? Do our children know? Does everyone know the nature of the game and the strategy and the tactics of the side that we are now a part of in Christ? Of the various biblical doctrines we might teach or might neglect to teach, one in particular provides people with reasons for engagement and participation in discipleship and mission, and that is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. It's a doctrine that speaks directly to the theme of this equip, together for his glory. All believers bringing glory to God by fulfilling the priestly duties given to each and every one of us. And it's a doctrine that's particularly important in a European context because of the ongoing influence on mindsets in Europe of the historic church. 
whose leadership and ministry structures were and are functionally more old covenant priesthood than new. In the time remaining, I want to look at four aspects of the all-believer priesthood that contribute to a theology of participation. Number one is its origins in Genesis. Number two is its foundation in the ministry of Jesus. Number three, its growth in the New Testament Book of Acts Church. And number four is its restoration today. So firstly, its origins in Genesis. The priesthood of all believers is not an, a, a, an idea invented by men. It's not an, uh, invented by the 16th century church reformers, by the Protestant church. Its origins are actually in God's plans and purposes for humankind on planet Earth. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I believe these verses point to the origins of all believer ministry in the heart of God. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And here, pre-fall, pre-Israel, pre-Israel, we see a prototype of the new covenant priesthood of all believers. Who is called to rule? A man and a woman, representative of all men and women, humankind, created to represent God, not needing other human intermediaries created for them to be between them and God, but themselves in direct and intimate relationship with God, out of which they receive authority from him to establish his order to the earth. Now, the fall messed up everything for humankind. So much so that God had to choose one nation with which to begin to put things right. And within that nation, one tribe to function as priests until the coming of a savior who would usher in a new priesthood. So point two, the foundations of the priesthood of all believers in the ministry of Jesus. In his incarnate ministry, Jesus called ordinary people to partner with him in doing the Father's work to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven on earth, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom, to destroy the devil's work for the glory of God, together for the glory of God. By involving ordinary people in what he'd come to the world to do, Jesus laid the foundations of a new all-believer priesthood. In the calling of ordinary fishermen, Andrew and Peter, James and John, and others, we see a model for ministry that the New Testament church was to follow and that the church today is meant to follow. You can read Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 to 8, just for supporting scriptures in that. But Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything, 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 everything I have commanded you. I love that. 
You've got to turn back to the very beginning of Matthew and pay more attention. Everything. Evidently, the old covenant Levitical priesthood was intended by God to be a temporary one. The 12 and the 72 and then the 11 that Jesus sent out in the Gospels, they weren't religious leaders in the Old Testament mold. He was doing a new thing, which leads me to point three, the growth of the priesthood of all believers in the New Testament book of Acts Church. The key thought in Acts 1 verse 1 is that even after his death, his resurrection and ascension, the ministry of Jesus continues through his church, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so from the 12 and the 72 and the 11, who were invited by Jesus to participate in his ministry in the Gospels, now in the new church era, the invitation to participate includes the 120 of Acts chapter 1, and then the many thousands upon thousands who were added to the church as it spread from Jerusalem to Antioch to Corinth to Ephesus to Rome. The church is tasked with what the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 verse 16 calls the priestly duty. The priestly duty of proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of Christ. Saying what Jesus said and doing what Jesus did in the power of the same Holy Spirit who anointed Jesus. And the reason that Paul could talk about this as the priestly duty of Jesus' followers is because Jesus had redefined the priesthood. Fulfilling in himself the law and the prophets, he ended the old covenant sacrificial system because he came as the once and for all Lamb of God sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. He ended tabernacle and temple-based worship because God's presence now indwells everyone who believes. And along with those changes, he consigned the Levitical priesthood to history, the priesthood that God had established during Israel's exodus from Egypt, consigned to history. It's shown to have been a temporary priesthood that served in the old way of worship and service before God was more fully revealed in Jesus. The old covenant priesthood, having been dispensed with as heavenly high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not Levi, Melchizedek, Jesus now sits in authority over a new, non-Levitical, all-believer, all-age group, youth, children, adults, everyone who's a believer, multi-generational, multi-cultures, every language, every tribe and tongue, and you all believe a priesthood, as we read at the beginning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And as we've seen, this new priesthood is a new priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. It also has new forms of worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, proclaiming his death until he comes again. It's a new, new form of worship, a new way of service, According to Romans chapter 7, verse 6, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Don't be a leader of a church that serves in the old way of the written code. A key scripture pointing to the emergence of the priesthood of all believers in the Acts era church is Acts 2. 
17 to 18, in the last days, this is from the book of Joel, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men, say young men. men. Would all the young men in the room say young men? Your young men will see visions. I'll tell you what, let's do the young women. Would all the young women in the room as well say young women? Okay. We won't get the old men to say anything. Uh, We hear enough from them anyway, right? Your old men will dream dreams. I don't mean that, by the way. I don't mean that to be dishonoring. That was just a cheap joke. I'm old. Sorry, Ray. (laughs) You're not old either. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. It's the old believer priesthood. And it's carried through into, well, into the rest of the New Testament. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which speaks of God distributing gifts of the Holy Spirit, just as he determines to who? To everyone. To everyone in the church for the common good. And it extends into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Artie Kendall says, all that is said of the Levites' relationship with God may be generally transferred to us. We do not let another live a holy life for us. We must do it ourselves. We do not let another perform worship for us. We must do it ourselves. We do not let a priesthood of men sing for us. We, male and female, sing for ourselves. We do not require that another answer questions about God. We are required to do it ourselves. We do not ask another to get God's guidance for us. We must seek God's guidance for ourselves. Which leads me to point four. The restoration of the priesthood of all believers today. Mobilizing the priesthood for mission. Just as Jesus called ordinary people to help him in his incarnate ministry, so today he still calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things through faith in him. The priestly ministry of Jesus' followers today is the same as it was for the disciples in the Gospels and for the church in the book of Acts. It is still to represent God in the world through the proclamation and demonstration of the Gospel, compelled by the love of God. Our priestly duty is to make sure that the world knows that there is a God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and who loves all people so much, his desire is that not one will perish but all come to repentance and eternal life through Christ. In short, our priestly duty is mission. Mission gives definition and purpose to the priesthood. Through the charismatic renewal in the second half of the 20th century, God has been restoring to the church the Ephesians 4.11 gifts that help followers of Jesus function more effectively as priests on mission. Pastors and teachers and evangelists have been joined by the restored offices of apostles and prophets 
to reestablish the fivefold ministry that Jesus gave the church on his ascension, to train and equip every believer for ministry as we respond in our own generation and to our own generation to the Matthew 28 commission to make disciples of all nations. The Old Testament priesthood was static. It was temple-based. It was Jerusalem-based. The new covenant priesthood is mobile because the mission Jesus has entrusted it to it requires it to be. Now, if the priesthood of all believers in our churches is not mobile and not active and engaged in mission, it could be, it could be that the people we lead wrongly assume the clergy-laity divide, quote-unquote, the clergy-laity divide in the church was, was put in place by God himself. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers reveals it was not. Clergy-laity divide, it's an old term for what emerged in the historic church as it deviated more and more from the biblical pattern. In more modern times, we might call it a divide in the church that has positioned leaders as the active dispensers of God's grace and church members as the passive recipients, or leaders as service providers and church members as consumers, or leaders as performers and church members as spectators, or leaders as entertainers and show people and church members as their audience or critics. People tend to think that's someone else's job. I've thought that in church life. I'm sure you have at some stage. I'm sure you lead people who do. Oh, that's someone else's job. Oh, just leave it. Someone else's job. Ministry, praying for others. That's someone else's job. Sharing the gospel, sharing our faith. That's someone else's job. Surely someone else is qualified to do that. But it isn't someone else's job. Just as priesting is too important to leave only to a few people the historic church has given the title capital letter priest to, so mission is too important to leave only to the few people that we call missionaries. We leaders, we need to smash the clergy-laity divide mindset and challenge mistaken views of mission. What are mistaken views of mission? That it is an activity undertaken by a select few, people we call missionaries. That, that therefore, mission isn't something ordinary people do, it's what extraordinary people do. That mission is elsewhere, not where we are at any given time. That because mission is elsewhere, it is somehow separate to quote-unquote normal Christian life. That mission is an event that has a beginning and an end. That it is possible for church to exist separate to mission. That some of us are sometimes on mission and other times we are not. No. No to all of the above. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Nine, 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 nine. Mission is for every follower, every disciple, every priest in the priesthood of all believers. And all believers means all ages. So the youth here today... I want to say this encouragement is just as much for you as it is for anyone else. And all of us are never not on mission. All of life is mission. I want to close with some handles for church leaders to see the priesthood mobilized. Be intentional, 
Number one, be intentional about smashing the clergy-laity divide. Make sure people know that they have permission to participate. Open the word and explain to them the truth of the matter. Appeal to their minds as well as their hearts, especially in intellectual Europe, where it seems to me the way to people's hearts is often through their minds. Constantly remind the people we lead that all followers of Jesus are called to be priests all of the time. That our priesting begins the moment the heavenly high priesthood of Christ is established in our lives at salvation. We're never not his priests. Because to be saved, governed, indwelt, and discipled by Jesus is to be a priest on mission with him. Number two, leaders... As leaders, we should follow the example of Jesus during his incarnate ministry and look for ways to intentionally involve other people in what we're doing. Facilitate change. Look for catalysts for change. Create catalysts for change. Be catalysts for change. Lead people towards those tipping points in their lives where one stage of discipleship transitions into another. Seekers, tipping point. Believers, believers tipping point followers, followers tipping point leaders, leaders tipping point multipliers. Another word for a turning point is crisis. You're laughing as if you faced a few recently. We tend to think crises are only bad, times of instability and turmoil, but crises can be good as well. The dictionary definition of crisis, one-off, is a stage and a sequence of events at which the trend of all future events, especially for better or worse, is determined. Leaders, engineer good crisis moments in the life of your church. Asking someone to do something they've not only never done before, but have never considered doing. That brings about a crisis in them. Fred caused a few of those crises in my life, Fred and Vanessa, over the years. But it brings about a crisis in them that's actually needed to propel them into the next stage of growth and responsibility. Asking someone to speak on a microphone for the first time, to share their testimony, to lead their first prayer meeting, to preach their first sermon. These are good, leader-initiated crises in those people's lives. I'm sure some of you will agree that an equip can be a crisis. Host an equip. Host an equip or an outreach or a city event that forces your congregation to acquire new skills and capability and confidence in God. Those create good crisis moments to determine the trend of future events in your church. We need to be building away from ourselves. Don't do anything that someone else could be doing. Don't do anything that someone else could do. Delegate. But don't just delegate what you don't want to do. Don't just delegate what you're not skilled to do. Don't just delegate what you don't have the time to do. Don't just delegate what you don't enjoy doing. Delegate what you could do yourself, but choose not to because it's in the interests of the other person. We need to be selfless here. We think that as leaders, us doing the work, we think that's selflessness. 
But if it's yourself doing the work when someone else could be doing the work, then you're keeping them out of work. And how selfish is it to keep anyone out of work? <laughs> Don't deprive people of the God encounters they would get through work by doing work for them. Know when to step aside so others can step up and thrive. Older people, know when to step aside for younger people. Younger people, know when to step aside for older people. Number three, as we look at the example of Jesus, acknowledge that maybe our own leadership mindset needs to change. If we've been raised in a leadership paradigm that doesn't totally align with the New Testament pattern, prepare for a paradigm shift. Think about how we administrate meetings and the church as a whole. How much space do we actually create for others to contribute in our life groups? In my experience, a lot of life group leaders talk too much, and I was one of them. Are we more task-oriented than people-oriented? Be the latter. Be people-oriented. The aim is not to accomplish tasks, but to disciple people through doing tasks together for his glory. Do we value excellence above people? If we do, we won't risk with those who are new in their gifts and talents. And if you put excellence before loving people, people are going to get hurt. Excellence has a tendency to drop people. I mean, I won't, I won't even go in the direction as far as perfectionism. I mean, that's almost evil. It's bondage. But excellence, which is essentially good, does have a tendency to drop people who don't reach a certain standard. And that's not a nice experience for people anywhere, but especially in a church. Have a grace for a lack of excellence even as you pursue it. Have grace for mistakes. Resource and release people. Identify and train capable people, then let them get on with the job. As far as possible, keep church structures decentralized, but clearly define the boundaries of delegated power and authority. Do not micromanage. It kills initiative and creativity and conforms people to your image and expectations rather than the image of Christ in them. Learn to be more trusting of the Spirit of God in other people. You're very trusting of the Spirit of God in you. Learn to trust the Spirit of God in other people. Understand that fruitful participation in church life and mission is more likely to happen under the headship of Jesus and less likely to happen under the headship of you. So make sure you have the correct biblical mindset on who is really leading your church. If you've made a little throne for yourself, get off it. <laughs> Learn to understand that consistency and dynamism are not mutually exclusive. They are both qualities required of leaders, consistency 
and dynamism. Sometimes we, re we reject dynamism and with it the prospects for change and movement and progress because we value consistency. But we can be both. God is both consistent and dynamic. So we leaders, we need to learn from God how to be consistent and dynamic. What we need to be consistent in for people to feel safe and stable and secure and what we need to become more dynamic in to get the church moving and to mobilize the priesthood of all believers. What aspects of current church life must remain non-negotiable constants and what can and should be ditched like sandbags on a hot air balloon as we, as we seek to, to rise higher, to enable us to rise higher? Number four, I'm just randomly throwing in numbers here because <laughs> I don't want to give you too many points. I'm only giving you five points. Number four, deal with your own issues of identity and insecurity, value, self-worth, job satisfaction. None of that should come from what you do. If that were the case, you would be reluctant to give what you do away to others. If your satisfaction comes from doing the work, Change your mindset. Learn to be satisfied at enabling and empowering others to do the work. And number five, work towards a plurality of leaders. Work towards a plurality of elders. New elders and eldership couples are not appointed to help the planting lead couple accomplish more tasks, but to join them in empowering greater numbers of people. When the task of eldership is shared with more and more people, with aspects of a lead elder's work delegated to other elders who in turn delegate to deacons and saints, there's going to be an exponential increase in participation. There's going to be mobilization. There's going to be movement. There's going to be life. <laughs>